What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for two ninety nine subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold-cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just two ninety nine each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Pat Crowley. He's an entrepreneur. He's been on Shark Tank, won a deal with Mark Cuban. He's got multiple TED Talks. And we were applying the labels to the bars on the drive to the show. We had four people applying labels to 3,000 bars in the car on the way. And I think we printed them the day before. So it was just like... Hair on fire, like, let's get this done. I don't think we slept the night before. We were printing up all of our display. We didn't even know how much we were going to charge for the bar until, like, an hour before the show. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Pat Crowley. Um, he's an entrepreneur. He's uh, been on Shark Tank, won a deal with Mark Cuban. He's got multiple TED Talks. Pat, thanks for being on the, on the uh, show today. Yeah, thank you very much. Excited to be here. Okay, put a little meat on those on that little intro there. Tell us some of the highlights from the, from the Pat career so far. <laughs> yeah, working backwards, I guess. So uh, it was about a year and a half ago, March 2014, we were on Shark Tank and secured a deal from Mark Cuban on the show. It was a pivotal moment for our career at Chapool, um, which is the first product in the United States to market insect protein as a healthy, sustainable protein. We launched that in 2012. So uh, first one of its kind is kind of we created an industry around the company, essentially. Uh, stepping back even from that, uh, my experience and kind of what prepped me to start a company was experience as a whitewater rafting guide and surf camp around the world. Uh, lived in Panama for a while, uh, guided boats in India and Grand Canyon and Columbia. Um, that's probably, in all honesty, that's probably some of the best prep to be an entrepreneur to deal with just <laughs> rapidly changing environments and, uh, hard backbreaking work. Um, and then just, I'm from Arizona originally, uh, born and raised in the desert, uh, became involved in water resources as really kind of my passionate, uh, my passion for 
setting up future generations with a more livable future, essentially, you know, having grown up in the desert, you know, parents are both from Southern California. So it's pretty, uh, it's pretty, you're pretty aware of living in that environment that we need some fundamental changes to the way we're living our life and the way we've set up our civilizations to, to withstand kind of a growing population, growing demand upon a finite resource. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where this is all shaped from and the path that we've gone has been wild and crazy and exciting and super fun. <laughs> that's great. So, um, so let's talk about this. So tell us about, so you went from no, sh- no shoes, no shirt, working in Panama surf camps to grad school for hydrology. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I lived on an island off the Pacific coast of Panama and yeah, I, I don't think I wore a shirt for eight months straight and Along the way, how I got from Arizona to Panama was by hitchhiking. Uh, a buddy of mine and I had his sister drop us off at the Mexico-Arizona border. We hitchhiked our way down. Uh, about six months it took me to get down there and live there, surf. But kind of along the way, I really saw firsthand the, the really global issue that we're facing as far as our access to water resources. Um, I saw many communities that just on a daily basis, it was a struggle to have clean water for survival. Um, And I I struggled living at a surf camp, not actively doing something kind of positive for the future. And so I decided to go get an education in water. I would have to, we didn't have any internet at the island, so I would have to take a boat in. Every Saturday, we'd pick up a new crew for the, they'd come stay at the camp for a week. And I would take a bus for nine hours to the local city that had internet. I would stay up all night long, like applying to grad schools, wouldn't sleep, get back on the bus, nine hours, meet the next crew the next day, and then take them out to the surf camp. (laughs) So I'd be telling these professors, like, well, here's my answer to your last question. It'll be a week before I answer the next. (laughs) But I applied and got into a school in in Tucson. So I left Panama, went to school, got a degree in hydrology. Um, And it was really in that education where I saw firsthand how big of an issue water is in the United States. And when I I got into the education, I I had every intent of going back to developing countries and and having an impact there. But... um, became aware of the dire situation we're facing here in the United States. It's just not as readily apparent. It's not in our faces every day, but we're using more water than we have available to us. And we're essentially just robbing our our grandchildren of their water. And so I I decided to to stay here and focus my efforts on creating more sustainable water infrastructure, water future for for our our country and and our culture that we have here. And so did you go to work for the BLM out of grad school? My first job out of grad school was the Arizona Department of Water Resources. Yeah, and I, actually it was very striking. It was like day two on the job. I remember sitting in an office room, you know, pretty small office room, and we were, had this 50-year plan of our water resources and the increasing demand as, you know, Phoenix was one of the most rapidly expanding cities at the time. And this, this graph had this bar showing increased demand and then how the supply that we're meeting it. And there was this big section of our supply for the future that just said future resources. And it did, we didn't have a plan necessarily what those future resources were. We know the demand is coming. We don't know where that water is going to come from. I remember looking around the room being like, wait a minute, we're the ones responsible for this entire city of providing water and figuring this out. And, and on one hand, it's crazy that we don't have that mapped out and lined up. And on the other hand, 
it's crazy that we're not directing the growth of this city in, in these civilizations. You know, the, these resources that will define our survival should be the most vocal voice that we have in our legislature. Well, no, but it just wasn't the case. You know, it's not very sexy platform to run on to talk about, you know, I'm going to provide water for generations 50 years from now, you know, <laughs> as opposed to the latest big you know, urban development package you have on the table. Yeah. So, and you went from there? I went from there to the BLM. Um, yeah, so I, I did a hydrology project. That was that was a spectacular uh, job I had at the BLM. I just backpacked around. It's not a sentence you usually heard. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> spectacular. Okay, sorry. Yeah, no. So I, I backpacked around northwestern Colorado, and my job was to map springs, natural springs that flowed out of, of the ground. So I would, I had this map and a backpack and a little ATV. I'd take that as far as I could, and then I would, I would backpack into these these areas and I would, you know, look across the cane. If I saw some darker vegetation, I would identify a spring, go in, test the water quality, place it on the map. And, you know, what I was doing was trying to create, you know, baseline levels of what the snapshot looked like of our water resource in that area, because there was a bunch of gas and, um, natural gas exploration. And we weren't really aware of the impacts that they were having. And nobody really tested how much groundwater was being taken by them. And, uh, so it was kind of a, a blessing as well as a, a curse to be able to have to see all that firsthand. And, and it, you know, it was the same thing. It was, you know, working for these public agencies, they have these, what the appeal was is their missions are, you know, long-term vision for our communities and our country. You know, how are we going to secure these natural resources and, you know, how are we going to preserve them for the future? And so I, I like that long-term vision, but at the same time, that long-term vision wasn't, um, it didn't jive with our daily impact as far as what was driving those long-term changes. And so is, this is the impetus for starting your own company? In part, yeah. It was, it was building. It was, a, it was an ember that was being fanned. Um, the, the real impetus was a TED Talk that I listened to from a Dutch professor that talked about uh, insects as a really water-efficient form of food. I had kind of drifted into uh, agricultural water planning. That's the largest consumer of water. 80% of our water out here in the West goes to agriculture. And so I was focused on driving efficiencies at the agricultural level, but kind of fully aware we needed radical changes, not just tweaks of dials. It was a, tweaks of dials on a broken machine, essentially. You know, we're growing the wrong crops. We're growing livestock for for cattle that's extremely inefficient we're doing in the middle of the desert it just doesn't make any sense um so when i listened to this ted talk about a more efficient livestock potentially in the form of insects and all that's keeping it from being a part of our agricultural sector is the cultural component of it that's when i was like okay so the issue is at the consumer level where the real impact is anyway for our resource consumption yeah. This sounds like a fun challenge. Let's dive in there. This will have a bigger impact than anything I've worked on previously. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I know a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. I typically do not hear the story from government bureaucracy right. to yeah. startup entrepreneurship. This it's, is a little different ends of the spectrum for a lot of people. Man, it is the, I will tell you, it is the opposite end of a work environment. <laughs> yeah, yeah not, that, not that it's yeah. So when did it's you... It's not the best prep. 
<laughs> okay, so at least at least you were off in India around the world to get yeah. to know what what uh, chaos is like. Okay, so tell us about when did you start the business? I started in 2012. Yep. Okay. We incorporated in 2012. We put a date on the calendar. It was the Los Angeles 27th Annual International Bug Fair in at the LA Natural History Museum. We put this exciting event. I know. I was like, really? There's been 27 of these in the past. Uh, we were like, we're going to sell our product then, and uh, we're going to launch it then. And so we just, it was like a six month. We don't even have a product. We know we're going to have to have an FDA label. We're going to have to have all this approved. We're going to have to have, you know, process in place to manufacture, and we're going to have to travel down there and sell it. So let's do all that in six months. And so, sure enough, having that date on the calendar uh, whipped us into shape, and we we threw together some beta prototypes of our first product, sold them, did really well, generated a lot of attention, and then used kind of that footage and that consumer feedback to then launch our Kickstarter project in June of 2012. So that was really, that was kind of a beta launch and then June 2012 through Kickstarter is really where the beginning of our company was. Okay. So on the show, a lot of times we like, you know, because it's my show, I try to, you know, capitalize on that, right? So, yeah, of course. Um, let's force my agenda. Really, people, okay. <laughs> so I, we were talking earlier about my theory that, you know, business can kind of be broken down into these three things, like have something awesome, Figure out how to get people to want that awesome thing from you, and then you know dealing with the human element. Yeah. Okay. So innovation, product market fit, you know, coming up with something awesome. From we're going to have something to sell in six months to processes and set it up and and launching Kickstarter and some people actually want to eat. Okay. Help, walk us through what that that process of innovation looked like and some of the failures and lessons learned. Yeah. Um, you know, it was. It was some advice I got from. Um, oh, I'm blanking on the name now. Um, I have to somebody look. awesome. Somebody awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're listening to this on your work people, come to Pat's page yeah, at ideationcollective.com. Yeah. We're gonna have the link to somebody awesome's name. Somebody awesome from Content Films okay. produced a, a film called Watershed, and the director of con- of this film was at this screening that I went to, and I was working in the in the water sector at the time. And they had this beautiful film and uh, it was all about water conservation, et cetera. And so I asked them from my perspective, what do, we, what do we do from the public sector when we have so much on our plate as far as converting people and their water consumption and their concept of you know, the future and these long-term water resources? And, and he said his advice was, you know, that so much of this is daunting, some of these problems are are so daunting that you really, to get people on board, you have to highlight and focus on the success stories, even if they're outnumbered by all the negative aspects of it. And so that really resonated with me. And so, you know, when we go to these events and that first time that we did our product launch, we were blowing people's minds. Nobody had heard of the concept of eating insects. It's a lot different today. You know, a lot more people have, it's on the radar. Um, but if nine out of 10 people were totally not into it, we focused all of our energy and, and focus and attention on that one out of 10 that was into it and liked the idea and liked the concept. And when you do that, it kind of generates more attention towards that person. And you start getting all those people that were on the fence, maybe the yeah. number two, three, and four that were only not into it because yeah. the person in front of them wasn't. And so highlighting the successes of 
not only what our product and our mission, but also the consumers that are adopting it and putting a spotlight on them. Yeah. Um, and so, okay. And getting, getting to the point where you actually have a product for yeah. people to get excited about, do you just, yeah. you looked up who was, who was farming? Okay. So yeah. to begin with, let's talk about why your bars are awesome. Besides you have these like crazy flavors, which right, are kind of yeah. fun to eat. Okay. So tell, tell us some of the crazy flavors and then tell us why this protein bar runs circles around whey protein or soy protein yeah, or whey, most of the guys at the gym are eating. Totally. So, you know, the only reason why we don't eat insects is for cultural reasons. And so we decided to highlight that with our flavor profiles. So each one of our flavors is highlights a, a flavor profile of a region of the world or culture that eats insects or historically did. So, so let's do some examples. Yeah. yeah. So we have a Thailand themed uh, coconut ginger lime flavor. You know, very unique. You won't find another bar like that. Um, we have an Aztec. It's dark chocolate coffee, cayenne chili. You know, how many bars do you pick up that give you a spice aftertaste? You pack in the heat. Uh, and then we have a, our newest one is a Japanese flavor. So it's matcha green tea, goji berries, and, and flakes of seaweed. So really unique flavor profile. That one's high in protein, low sugar. And we have a Chaco uh, It's an all-American peanut butter and chocolate. And it's named after a Native American group in this area that ate insects historically. So kind of trying to match the two of like, yeah, we're introducing insects, but we're really reintroducing insects. It was really just kind of Europeans that came over here and wiped out the practice. So that's our, our, our exotic flavor profiles. And we're really kind of mission based. Um, but then the, the protein itself, you know, we don't have to rely on just these like, gourmet high tasting bars that the actual protein content is extremely high quality. So, really balanced amino acid profile. It's a complete protein. It's very digestible to the human body. It's, you know, relatively minimal processing that goes into creating the cricket flour. And, you know, when you compare it to soy protein or whey protein, these are heavily processed and your body just doesn't digest that protein nearly enough. Okay. So what does that mean for me? So, yeah. I, you know, we're about the same age yeah. in our mid thirties here. You know, we both, we're both dads. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there's the like I meant to work out, and then five years went by. Kind yeah, of thing, right. Sure. But yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting back on track. I got my gym membership, right? You know, I got my road bike, and I'm like, okay, I'm really going to get back into shape, whatever. Yeah. Why do I care about the amino acids and the stuff like that? Why do I want that protein bar instead of whatever's cheap at Costco? Yeah, sure. So, you know, your body only produces uh, some of the amino acids that are required to build muscle. And so the amino acids that your body does not produce, you have to consume via your diet. And so that's why they're the essential amino acids. So we have all of those in a single source. So if you have like pea protein or hemp protein, you don't, you're not getting all of those essential amino acids. So you're really not building muscle at the rate that you could be. You have to pick and choose from different protein sources, but you get all of them in a single protein source. And how many grams of protein in your bars? So we have a, like, we have kind of varying levels. So we have our Aztec bar is more of a dessert bar because that's five grams of protein. And then our Chaco and Thai are three to one ratio carb to protein. So that's the bar you want to eat while you're actively working out. It's ideal ratio for kind of in workout. And then our matcha bar is the high protein, high fat. So that's a recovery bar. So that one's 11 grams of protein and only six grams of sugar in that one. And the point is that 11 grams of protein, not all 11 grams of protein are created equal because whether you're getting the acids and amino acids with it or not. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So walk us through 
you're buying your first cricket flour. Where, where, how'd you know how to make a protein bar? Oh my gosh, this is a long story. So okay, let's do a short version. Yeah, short version. Uh, thankfully, even though there was nothing like it on the market, um, there was historic, anecdotal evidence of Native Americans that would dry out insects, use stone tools to mill them down to a, a protein powder and make bread out of it. So there was a model somewhat in place. We basically did the same thing. So we contacted cricket farms. Okay, even before then, I tried to... Before I started business, I wanted to incorporate it into my own diet. Kind of walk the walk before you talk the talk. Couldn't catch crickets for the life of me. (laughs) (laughs) I had all these traps around our house and I just could not catch a single one. Uh, All my roommates thought I was crazy. But then, so that led me to, you know, investigate. Can you actually just buy these things? And that's what turned me on to the cricket growing industry. Been around for 80 years, mostly for pet feed. And so then I got, uh, they shipped their crickets live. So I had live crickets coming to my house and I had aquariums in my garage and I would experiment raising them on different diets and just figuring out how do they grow. Dude, what do you feed a cricket? Whatever the heck you want. That's the, that's the beauty of them. <laughs> They'll eat a wide range of things. So yeah. you, I was feeding them oats and kind of more typical like animal feeds. And that's what most of them are growing on now. It's just like a standard chicken feed, but really where the potential for energy and in environmental efficiency is is feeding them agricultural byproduct. So your corn husks and, and things that are just going to waste anyway. You know, there's a substantial amount of our agricultural products just goes to waste. You know, whether it's a deformed carrot, you know, that they just can't sell at the grocery store. It's just more efficient for them to throw it away than to find an alternative source. So if we can tap into those, that's where I'm really excited about the future of insect proteins heading. But Anyway, <laughs> I was yeah, my my yeah. inner investor is getting excited about yeah. that. I was a it's huge. you know Bloomberg New Energy Con- Finance um, has this great conference every year. And I was at the London one a couple of years ago, and they took us um, to one of the universities that was had, was figuring out how to make ethanol from switchgrass mm-hmm. instead of instead of taking a food source. They're taking the like basically the, the plant product nobody wants that can yeah. be grown on the side of any real crop, right? Yeah. And it's just like this efficiency opportunity Absolutely. that actually turns into a revenue opportunity because you're not competing. Everybody wants corn to eat. When you're competing for that, it's it's going to slash your margins, but nobody wants to eat switchgrass or right. these other, you know, these other forms of cellulose that are traditionally hard to break down. So from an investor standpoint, it's kind of exciting to hear about efficiencies. And yeah, it's it's funny. Like from my industry, from my history in water, it was it was frustrating to see how much focus was on like new sources and like new technology. And it's just easier to get money for that when you can have a substantially larger impact for a lower investment if you focus on conservation and so fixing those inefficiencies. It's not as sexy and it's harder to sell, but you can have significant more impact. So when we address our food system here in the country, you have to, you, you can't ignore the elephant in the room that 40% of our food in this country goes to waste. Almost half of our food goes to waste either in the farming sector from retail grocery or at home when you throw away expired product. But if you can tap into that 40%, it's not as sexy as you know some new technology that can do X, Y, or Z. But if you can tap into that waste, that's where real impact will occur. Well, you know, maybe the product itself isn't sexy, but I, you know, my friends who are doing oh, ours waste is, to ours is. Is. Yeah, don't, yeah. don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, those guys who are doing 
boring reliable income from waste to heat, turning into syngas and stuff like this. I mean, their investors think it's sexy. Fair right? enough. Fair uh, enough. Yeah. Okay. So sorry for the tangent. No. You're getting the live crickets, and you you're making yeah. your first bar. Yeah. It's just total experiment. Yeah. You know, our bar wasn't actually the first product. Um, we were we were frying them. We'd throw them as croutons on our salad. Kind of, that's a traditional model in, in Thailand. If you go to Thailand, they have food markets where there will be several hundred varieties of insects just fried or roasted or, or whatever. Just vendors like a food cart, like a taco cart here. Um and so we were doing that kind of style. I was thinking about the Lion King the whole time you're saying this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but what really but really drove the energy bars, the first product, was looking at other food products that had that same cultural barrier. And the closest parallel I could draw was the sushi industry. And that's been like an analogy that's kind of pervasive at this, this new industry we've created. But basically, I looked at the sushi industry. Uh, they struggled for five to 10 years getting a foothold in the restaurant sector uh, in the late sixties, early seventies until this man, Ichiro Mishida strategically developed the California role, very craftily addressing our psychological component. So he, what one of the most brilliant things he did was he put the rice on the outside of the nori. So seaweed, super foreign looking thing to Americans. He covered that up. We don't have that visual association with it anymore. He removed the raw fish, put in avocado, same texture, but this baby gentle introduction. So that's when I was like, okay, I need to remove the visual aspect of crickets. Let's make a powder out of it. Let's put it in a format that's then really convenient, really accessible. You guys made the cricket flower. We did. Yeah. Yep. So we, we made it. We coined the term cricket flower. We uh, developed the first processes to do it. We developed kind of the standard allergen warnings associated with it became precedent now for the entire industry. Um, and I thought that the people that would be most receptive to our environmental mission would be kind of outdoor enthusiasts. And so, you know, one of the largest consumers of energy bars. So that's really where the energy bar was born was mimicking the California role of the sushi industry. Genius. Uh Look for the parallels, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're totally reinventing the wheel as far as launching a new product in a new sector in a new entirely new industry. So, the fewer kind of new models that we can do, the better. So, we're looking all around, like what has been done before elsewhere that took on this mission. But it's, it's back to efficiency, right? Yeah, yeah. If, if so, you want to be recognized as a pioneer, go do something nobody's ever done. If you want to be successful, try to learn from as many other people's mistakes as you totally. can. Right? And, and, you know, there's there's all those analogies as far as, you know, first pioneer gets all the arrows, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we kind of accepted that role. Um, this was an idea that I, I wanted to spread, and it, it needed to happen in the United States. And I thought that, you know, potentially we're going to launch this and we're five, ten years too early. But the idea has to get out there, and this will help it. Let's start this national conversation about incorporating insects into our, our food system. And so we jumped out there willing to be the pioneers, you know, knowing full well that other people are going to kind of come on board, like, yeah. capitalize on our marketing efforts. And that was a part of the plan from day one is let's get this idea out there. We don't necessarily have to own it. We don't have to be the, the owner of this entire industry. Let's just get it started for the benefit of, of the future. That's exciting. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, a lot of our audience are, are entrepreneurs or there's some other kind of innovator trying to come up with something, trying to figure out 
um, get the product market fit, trying to get the thing to actually yeah. work in the yeah. first place. Okay, tell us about some of the mistakes trying to make the first cricket bars. Yeah. Whether uh, it's flavor, whether it's process, whether oh it's whatever. Oh my gosh, we made a ton of mistakes. Where do I start? Um, yeah, get get help from somebody in as specific of the industry as you're going for. So we, I was like, okay, I want to take, I want to make a delicious bar. I'm going to get help from people that make delicious food. So we got people from the restaurant industry to help us our first bars. Unbelievable, so delicious. But they had a shelf life of about two weeks. <laughs> you know, I didn't ask for somebody in the packaged consumer goods industry. And so, <laughs> lesson number one here: get the right. Exactly, that's what I mean. Good, as specific as possible, okay. specific as possible to your industry, because uh, there's so many nuances that just won't fit. Um, I, I think one of the biggest take homes for us was, and that we did pretty well with uh, early on, was throw away your concept of perfection. You will not create the perfect product. If, if you wait to create the perfect product, you'll, you'll never bring it to market. So in lieu of creating perfection, create momentum and forward progress. So continually continue to make your product better. Just every iteration. And I know you have to put in a lot of costs for molds or whatever it is. But if you, you will become stagnant if you're just waiting for it to become perfect. So we launched our bar. We got feedback. We continually got feedback. Every luckily for us, we were doing really small batches. You know, we were bootstrapping, making bars, selling them, use that money for the inventory of the next round. And so, and where would you sell? We started out kind of after we did that. We started on Kickstarter, and okay. then we would sell at farmers markets. But let's talk yeah. about that. So, when did you set the goal to have this first one produced, and did you hit your first mark? We did, yeah. Okay, so you, how far out was it the, that show? The exciting so show. It was six months out. Okay, and we were applying the labels to the bars on the drive to the show. We had four people applying labels to three thousand bars in the car on the way, and I think we printed them the day before. So it was just like hair on fire. Like let's get this done. I don't think we slept the night before. We were printing up all of our display. We didn't even know how much we were going to charge for the bar until like an hour before the show. <laughs> is this like an LA Convention Center? Where is this? Helpful? No, it's at the Los Angeles Natural History Museum. Oh, that's kind of a cool it, place. It turned out, it was not planned this way, but it was phenomenal as far as early market testing because this insect show, unbeknownst to us, brings in people from all demographics, all different subcultures in LA. LA in general has a wide variety of, of different flavors of people. And so we got feedback from all ages. I mean, the kids and like elderly and just different ethnicities and different uh, economic brackets and all across the board at a single event, such a wide variety of people that get a lot of reactions. Yeah. So I'm taking, I'm going to go on here and you sold more than one bar. We sold a lot. Yeah, we did pretty well. I I don't remember how many sold actually. We sold out and I think we only had uh, I mean, we had a thousand bars or something like that, but we sold out in a three-day event. Yeah. That's pretty great. Yeah. So, come on, we decided to do the Kickstarter campaign, or what was that? No, we, we had wanted to do the Kickstarter, but we wanted uh, video footage in our Kickstarter of people actually eating the product. And so, we were just capturing video footage, and we had you know, thousands of people. I think 20,000 yeah. people came to that event. So. Well, so, one of my questions, you know, product market fit get something that, that something that not just you think is awesome that other people think is awesome right 
we were talking about my friend at Whole Foods, and he was saying, hey, one of the issues for this sector is is taste, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what flavor did you start with, and why did you pick that flavor? Same thing. Fine. We're so far out there, we have to like find things that bring us back to mainstream, if you will. So first flavor, peanut butter and chocolate. Top selling flavor of energy bar in this country. So we started there. Let's make it as familiar take as possible. Take what works. Yep, take what works. You know, it, and that was a struggle. It's, it's, it's still a constant struggle. Like we're so far out there as far as this new concept. Do we just completely go in that direction? Do we have a new product that's nobody's ever seen? And it, it kind of, the education that's come through. Yeah, how do, you, how do you make that decision? Because you're crazy yeah. matcha bar. I mean, I remember eating the cayenne bar, and yeah. it's like, that's the first protein bar I ever had with cayenne bar. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And it's like, it turns it into a talking piece. Totally. But then there's the familiarity of like, well, if I'm going to eat a lot of these, maybe I do want some just chocolate ones. Yeah. You know? So yeah. What, what does that thought process look like inside the company of deciding? Yeah. You know, I think our flavors, we like to be fun. And we're, we, all of us have kind of traveled to different areas. And so we, we keep these exotic flavors, maybe just in the interest of us. They're more creative, more stimulating. And we have like people that like a specific flavor, love a specific flavor. And they, they're, they bought it. Pretty polarizing. Yeah, absolutely. And we've gotten feedback that we should be more mainstream, like flavor profile, but you know, it, it's also liberating to some regards when you do something that totally bucks a system and the infrastructure that's in place. And we're developing our whole new supply chain. We don't have to adhere to the standard rules. Like we can rethink everything about the business that we're in, the industry that we're in, the consumers that we're consuming, we're servicing, and we don't have to adhere to archaic rule sets. So it's kind of, you know, whether it's flavor profiles or whether it's, you know, delivering all our bars via bike instead of, you know, traditional distribution methods. So thinking about you guys, you know, my favorite book, Differentiate or Die, one of my favorite marketing books says, you know, people are not buying your stuff because of how much you like your competition, right? They're buying you for what's different about you. Yeah. And you guys create these natural talking pieces. Yes, you've got the the more uh, mainstream flavor, but you've got these, these crazy flavors that are natural talking pieces. I mean, it seems like a huge advantage for getting the attention. Yeah, it, it is. And that's, we've relied on that for our PR marketing strategy is, is just do fun stuff, do innovative things, whether it's come up with a new flavor or whether it's, you know, go to the largest natural food expo and build our entire booth at the trade show from discarded material during setup day. So we went in and, you know, on Thursday, everyone's setting up their booths. We took all the cardboard and built a whole little castle out of it. Had <laughs> some artists just like slinging these exacto knives and chalk around. And, you know, there's no mold that we have to adhere to. And so you do something creative like that and people talk about it. And so we haven't paid for any advertising. We haven't paid any PR firm. It's just been organic because, you know, you do, you do cool things and people talk about it. Well, it's partially credit to you, though, because you, you really live the brand like you... There's a natural authenticity. I, you know, I know some of the other staff, like you guys are really in it. So I think you got to take some credit for that. Yeah. All right. Well, appreciate it. Um, so, you know, we've talked about being awesome, right? You guys have got bar that tastes good. That's got these, you know, really high quality protein that's solving some of the issues that, that the competition is not. I mean, legitimately better product yeah. in a bunch of ways, which is absolutely not enough, right? People right. got to find right. out about it. People got to, we got to get people to part with dollars, Right. 
So let's talk about, um, you know, we've, we've talked about some of the things for getting people to want it, right? The, the sushi comparison of overcoming the mental stigma, this kind of stuff. Um, you know, you were telling me before about how Shark Tank was actually one of these learning experiences for you and some of the advice from, from some of your guide uh, in the rafting days. Can you kind of share with the listeners about your philosophy going into that and, and uh, how you built a big... Bars. Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of a it's twofold approach. It's like one is just go for it, go hard, go big, um, send it, or whatever term you want to use. And then it's you know snowboarder, <laughs> maybe a bit. Uh, and then it's look back at how what your performance and reevaluate and have some experiential education associated with it. So, yeah, the, the piece of advice the raft guide kind of guru gave me was, you know, pre-Lava Falls. It was the, it's the largest rapid in the Grand Canyon, and it was my very first trip, and he's giving me advice on how to run this, you know, behemoth of a rapid. And, and uh, basically, you, you have this line that's very strategic, very precise, and then uh, it's very, you know, high-precision, high like skill to get to where you want to be high consequences oh for sure high consequences yeah if you don't hit these very precise marks and but then even after all of that precision you hit like the biggest feature the wave in this case and then you have to totally reevaluate your plan in in the case of that running this rapid it's because you your boat essentially goes underwater it's 18 foot inflatable raft goes completely underwater <laughs> and then you come up and figure out what way your boat is facing. I mean, it can do anything it wants to you, and it's out of your control at that point. Uh, so that's kind of how we viewed, like going into Shark Tank, for example, it was totally unknown, you know, for this new product category, you know, new customer. We don't know what the demographic is. Nothing ever been like, has been done like it before. So we hit it hard, just figure out which way our company is facing at the end of it. You know, who, who came to our website that day? Like, where did the flood come from? And, you know, where should we point from there, essentially? So it's, it's a mix of just charging, you know, full force into the unknown and then looking back what happened, how can we use that information to, to plan a little bit better for the next one. Well, I like you bringing up that mix of, like, the courage and the creativity and the guts and the the analytics and the math and the numbers and the, you can't fly, you know, you can get started by the seat of your pants, but it doesn't hurt to look at how, you know, to yeah. evaluate too. Yeah, right? totally. Um, you know, when you're telling me about this, this, these rapids that like even the experienced guys get nervous every time coming to them and they'll stop the boat and go look at it every time. And yeah. like, it's, it's not that they're not aware of, Hey, this could go either way, but they, but they do it anyways. Yeah. And it sounds like they don't try to control everything when you're saying they get spit out the other end and it's like, Hey, you know that this is going to create something you're not going to control. So don't pretend to control it. Just, it, it sounds like prepare for the uncertainty or something. Absolutely. Is that totally, direction? totally. Yeah. It, yeah. Raft guiding is all about come up with your plan A more or less. And then a quarter of the way through your rapid switch to plan B. Yeah. And then halfway down when you hit another rock and you're facing some other, come up with plan C on the fly plan D and then by the end maybe you'll go back to plan A <laughs> so have all that kind of in mind what's your backup plan if this doesn't work but you know you can't be so rigid that this is how we're going to do it and we don't have a plan for if this doesn't work so have it kind of in mind but no plan for the unexpected or expect the unexpected at the very least no I, I love that you know we've had you know different special operations uh, servicemen on the on the show before and 
I obviously did a lot of consulting for the military in the past, and it makes me think actually about that quote from a famous general that says that uh, plan, plans are useless, but planning is priceless. Yeah. Um, is the act of planning is I know I'm misquoting it, but the act of planning is priceless, right? If, if, yeah, planning is useless, but failing failing to plan is planning to fail. There's that too, right? Yeah. And it's this idea of the like, you know, it would be dumb not to go look at the rapids. It would be right. dumb not to say, hey, our company's up against this issue. This could be a real turning point for us, positive or negative. To not evaluate it, but then to not also pretend that you can control it either. Totally. Okay, so. A lot of people listening to the show would like to have Mark Cuban as an investor. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about getting on Shark Tank, why this was like going through the huge V wave in the rapid, and, <laughs> and what you did with it. It's a funny introduction to that because I, uh, I, was after, I finished a 14 day rafting trip in the Grand Canyon. And then 48 hours later, I was filming for Shark Tank. And so, <laughs> and how did you get on again? I just submitted an email, uh, inquiry via email, and they fired back some questions, responded, and then they, they were into it, you know, filled out their 25-page application, submitted the video, and went through the standard hoops. We didn't know anyone, no special connections or anything like that. They just liked our company, liked who we were. Um, and so, uh, yeah, they scheduled it for right after this trip. I wasn't going to do it initially because they scheduled it during this, this trip. And it yeah, was, it trip. No, I, they were like, yeah, you can't make you realize this is Shark Tank? I was like, yeah, but you realize this is the Grand Canyon. <laughs> but they were able to reschedule and kind of bump it for, for a couple of days later. And so uh, and that was some of the best preparation leading into that because I, you know, I was totally grounded. I had spent 14 days, you know, no, all you're worried about is what you're going to eat that day and having fun all day. And so going to Shark Tank, it's you know intimidating experience. It's like shooting big rapid, but the producers of the show tell you, here's what's successful. Have fun and have high energy. Because one thing that a lot of people don't know is they only film or they only air on an episode about half of the companies that film. So you're competing not only for money, but you're competing against other entrepreneurs that go in there for what's going to make a good episode. And so that's just as much in your head because that's the real win is, is being presenting your product in front of 9 million viewers um, in addition to, to the investment. But the, the two go kind of hand in hand. And, and so in there, I'm, you know, in my head as I'm answering these questions, I'm also thinking, oh, I have to make a good television. So <laughs> I'm just like high energy, like having a good time and not being intimidated by the 10,000 cameras that are on you at every angle and whatnot. But um, Hey, that's what I did. This is about a year and a half ago. This is a year and a half ago, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we filmed in August of 2013, and the, air, the episode aired in March of 2014. Okay, so let's, let's talk about your, your planning versus, yeah, you know, yeah. first contact with the enemy. Okay, so <laughs> when you're going into it, what, what did you think game plan-wise? Here's what it is. We're going to, I mean, like, did you have a logical, we're going to go from the bar to the market to the da-da-da, and just have a presentation, basically? Are you talking specifically Shark Yeah. For Shark Tank? Yes. Uh, no, I just, I, I was just went in there. I, I kind of, I knew my stuff, did my history. I, I know my financials, know kind of where we're headed. And I, and I was confident we had a good picture to paint. You know, we, we were experiencing 30% month over month growth going into the tank. So I, I, I had a good story to tell. And then it was just a matter of having a conversation with people. And I think that was the biggest, you know, thing from being grounded from the Grand Canyon and whatnot. I, I wasn't viewing them as, 
otherworldly or like different from you and I or, or somebody I meet on the street. I'm, I'm not going to treat them with any more or less respect than anyone else I meet. And so I could just have a conversation as people with them. And I think they appreciated that. You know, I address their concerns and, and, but not, you know, scripted. I'm not trying to force something that's, that's not real to them. I'm, I'm having a conversation about our business, where we're at, where our plans for the future are. And it seemed to go well, you know, even the one, even the investors that didn't invest were like, Hey, you know, sounds great. I love you. Not my field, not my market, but, uh, but got good feedback as far as I can. Anyway, I think Mark Kurjevic said, you know, I'm not really into food space. Insects are really challenging for me as an individual. And he said, but if anyone is going to do this and get this into me, it is you. <laughs> That's like one of those compliments you like pull out on the bad days, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. We get, a, you know, we, it, on some levels of expression, we get a lot of those compliments of like, we love it. We fully support you. You know, uh, we're not going to buy today, but fully support this mission. Like we want to see, like enter into mainstream a little further. Why don't you do a little bit more of the backbreaking work before we'll support you? (laughs) But we love it. (laughs) Um, No shortage of fans. Okay. So uh, on the show, what was it like? Mark saying, yeah, I want to do it. How does that all work? Yeah. Um, it was, you know, one thing, another thing that you don't see that's kind of behind the scenes is yeah, I was out there about an hour and a half of Q and a, and then they whittle the editing down to about 10 minute version of it for the episode. And so it, there's a lot more conversation that's going on. It's a little more chaotic than it's presented on, on TV, but, um, I think everyone had went out at that point, but then Mark, Mark specifically, um, kind of prides himself and is a is genius in seeing kind of the future of industries, not what's currently trending, but what will trend in the future. And, and so he, he definitely saw the, the future vision of not only the insect protein, but Chapul being a, a larger, large stakeholder, being the, the innovators and the creation of the industry, essentially. So um, I think that's what really helped kind of land Mark was his ability to see the, the future of the industry um, before it even exists. And so, yeah, he got on board with, because of that. Um, and, um, yeah, he's been tremendously helpful and, and we've been growing ever since. Uh, and so, um, afterwards, do you guys negotiate and price and percentage and all that stuff? How's that work? <laughs> no, it's crazy. Your typical investment, you, you spend several conversations and over time and you do due diligence and this is like, under the camera, like we shook hands after having met each other literally like an hour previously. Uh, but yeah, you have the opportunity to do due diligence on each other. And so they were able to see all of our financials and make sure I was telling the truth about what I said on the show. And, um, actually yeah, pretty friendly terms. And it was just like, yeah, let's, he, I don't, I don't want to speak for him, but my impression is that he, a lot of this is he's genuinely trying to help people out especially people that have built a business from hard work because that, you know, that's a lot of his roots is just hard work and ethic got him to where he is. And, um, you know, we built, we, we had an initial investment of $5,000 in our company, myself and my partner, you know, it was, you know, it was a life savings of a raft guide. <laughs> so it was big in our books, but, uh, you know, that's not a lot of money, especially with a food company that's such high cost of goods. And so, you know, we, we bootstrapped quite a ways to, to be able to, you know, get to the point where we're presenting to him. And then even then, you know, with his, his financial investment, it's still not very substantial when it, it, 
in the food category. And we've been able to grow with, with hard work, you know, determination and, and passion of, of everyone involved. So I, I think he has a kind of, uh, yeah, it, he has a special kind of place in his portfolio for people that just grind it out. Well, uh, you know, when we were talking before and you were telling me that the money's great, but the ongoing support is actually, you think, even surpassed the value of the yeah, cash investment. Yeah. Can you yeah. tell us a bit more what that looks like? Yeah, so, you know, he's a, he's a team player for sure, and he's created a team to, to help out his portfolio companies. So the services that he's provided in, in, that, in that form have been, yeah, I, I would say probably surpassed the initial 50000 in cash that he provided to us. You know, there's graphic designers. We just did a new packaging relaunch that really highlights those kind of regional uh, flavors. And, and so somebody on his design team did that for us. And, and you know, this brilliant, uh, creative artist put these together for us. And so I don't know what that service would, would have cost us if we had to outsource that. Or, you know, we didn't have those skill sets or that software on our team internally. So it was, it was a huge asset to us. I mean, I was surprised to hear how hands-on he is about you sending him your weekly reports and getting comments and then the team helping with, you know, the, the other parts of running a business. Like It's insane. I mean, he, I, I don't know what his portfolio is up to at this point, but it's got to be pretty close to 100, if not over 100 of companies from Shark Tank alone that he's invested in. So the fact that he has so much time is, is blows me away and it kind of inspires me to be better about responding to emails. It's like, if he has time to respond, I have time to respond to all my emails. uh, He he says he, at the very least, reads all the emails that come in, and I I can't, I have no idea what sort of volume that is, but I can only imagine it's a huge amount of, of traffic coming his way, so. You know, when we were talking about that, I was thinking, um, you know, sometimes it's great as an entrepreneur to be able to do whatever you want. Um, sometimes it can actually be helpful to have a bit of an external accountability thing going on too. Have you found that or is it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're in the process of putting together a more official board of board of advisors right now. Um, uh, we, we've done everything kind of, uh, we didn't have any business backgrounds. So we're doing things kind of, we did things on the fly kind of you know, just, yeah, just, kind of uh, out of necessity but now we're becoming a little more official and for that reason we're, we're trying to bring in more expertise and that external accountability is, is pretty uh, helpful at meeting timelines and budgets mm-hmm. and things like that well um, thinking about this idea of you know getting the word out there not everybody has a business that's as, as exciting of yeah. a conversation you know maybe there's a little easier to get people to Buy, but, but not as much of a natural draw. What what, uh, what lessons do you think people, even in a boring industry, could take from what's worked for you guys about getting the word out, getting the conversation going? Any any principles that come to mind? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, when we launched our Kickstarter project, I mean, Kickstarter in general, you launch a project, and that's where the real work begins because then it's all about communicating it. And I mean. And the more personal you can make that, the better. Um, so, I mean, I, I personally emailed everyone in my contact list, and I personally sent a Facebook Not a blast email, you're saying you... Personal, like individual emails. Canned responses is good for that in Gmail. If you don't, haven't used that function, look that one up. But, 
uh, you can kind of tailor it to each individual. But I mean, I mean, my my insurance agent got an email from me about my Kickstarter page, and if if you believe in what you're doing, regardless of the level of innovation, if you believe in it, you should not feel shy about sharing it with anyone you come in contact. Yeah, with. You know, if you slime me or slime it, yeah, exactly. Down throat, exactly. Right? This is what I believe in. This is what I'm doing. And you know, if you want to help me out, you can. If not, don't. But please pass the word if, if you're so inspired to do so. That's great. Well, you know, we always ask guests on the show. Um, obviously, we're big supporters of child rescue, my yeah. family, and Startnet stuff. And, um, what advice would you have for us at Child Rescue on trying to get more people involved in helping rescue kids from sex trafficking or just yeah. get the word out about what we're doing? Yeah, I, I think I, you know, what really came to mind is something I already talked on earlier. And that's, I mean, you're in an industry that there's so much darkness associated with. I mean, it's such tragic uh, situations that you're trying to prevent. And, and it's it's challenging for people to think about or want to think about that that tragedy and so really focusing on the success stories and so the people that have come out of it and their beautiful life now because of it and I, I think if you kind of highlight those and and focus on that as what people can contribute to this like beautiful aspect that of course comes out of you know a very dark place but if you want to get people behind you you focus on that you talk about that and you know Martin Luther King focused on the hope, you know, what is in the future, what can be, not, you know, this, this current uh, negative scene. And so it's, you know, point positive, essentially. So that would be my advice is as much as you can. There's some beautiful test cases that you have with, like, cases of people that have come out of, of this tragedy. And so, you know, highlight the, the beautiful aspects of their life. And I think that you'll, you'll get people following you a lot more. No, that's great. Yeah. Um, well, um, so obviously have something awesome, get people to want it from you. He's very, you know, ideally it turns into a big system, you know, and you've got yeah. constant innovation, you've got the constant marketing engine, whatever. But um, those systems have to be operated by somebody, right? Yeah. Think, thinking about the operators, um, you know, obviously just the time that we've, you know, got to know know each other being around together and stuff i i can see why your team likes working with you you've got uh you know kind of what you're talking about about um seeing someone on the street is the same as people at shark tank who who can make this big difference in your life that um i can see how that kind of like approach would be really beneficial as you're trying to lead your team and stuff but what what kind of philosophies do you have about well let's start with this one um, you know, we, we joke around that entrepreneurs, a lot of times they eat, either need a little more confidence or they need a little more humility depending <laughs> yeah. on the situation. Yeah. What, any, any tips or tricks from Pat on how to keep yourself in check, how to take a look in the mirror? Oh, that's a good one. Um, you know, just, just the, just the reminder to do that. I, um, I don't know. I don't know that I have a specific method for it, but just the constant reminder. And I actually got that advice from what really helped me with it. I got that advice from Laird Hamilton one time. You know, he's one of the most famous big wave surfers in the world, and he essentially yeah, 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 obviously yeah, I met him at an outdoor retail show. Um, he, he's a, he, I found out somebody through somebody through somebody that he was eating our bars, and so I, I sent him some bars as a thank you and a shirt. And uh, he, he actually does some work at, with I, th- I believe raincatcher.org. So he does some work in you know, uh, freshwater access for people, and so I, I thanked him for that effort because you know anytime that somebody has that backing behind them that you know followers, if they can put that to good, I, I really appreciate that. And so 
I, you know, I thanked him for that effort. And, um, and then I met him at outdoor retailer. And so he, he we kind of had that background and, uh, it, 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 we had a conversation on the banks of demo day at this lake, people are demoing stand up paddle boards. And he essentially created that industry. He was one of the pioneers of stand up paddle boards. And he, uh, we're surrounded by all these other paddleboard companies, you know, big companies that have gotten into it and just blown up. And, you know, he is a core water man. It was like as authentic, authentic. He's guy's hardcore. Yeah. Oh. But he doesn't look like a surfer, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> he looks, oh he's, 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 he's so muscly, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but so we're having this conversation of, he, he was one of the pioneers of this industry, you know, because he wanted to get into big waves, not do yoga at your local like aquatic center, which is kind of where the industry is taking it. Um, but nonetheless, he was the one telling me about all these, we have all these knockoff brands now and all these competitors that are mimicking us and kind of in it for not necessarily the same reasons we are. They're, they're in it to make a quick buck and whatnot, kind of knocking off some of our image and some of our like whatever. And, uh, and so he, I think he was aware of some of that. And so he had a question about, you know, patenting and I was explaining about it's more about spreading the idea and we're we're just trying to brand it by you know authenticity and transparency and being you know responsible for providing healthy food products etc and so he was the one that told me like that's where you maintain being grounded in an area where people are you know knocking you off mimicking you and potentially making more money by doing it is you continue to focus on that innovation he's like that's where you're the leaders you're the innovator and you have to check your ego at the door when it comes to like you know all these other companies and, and just maintain that innovation don't get wrapped up in in the competition of what doesn't matter whether it's you know who's got more money in the bank etc but you know for somebody like laird hamilton to to tell me that he has to check his ego and for me to do the same, that, that meant a lot. <laughs> it really resonated with me. And sure. If he can say that, like, yeah. So I think that was pretty, pretty helpful to just constantly remind yourself, whatever method you do to do that, just make sure that it's consistent and constant in your life. We'll have to, uh, on, on your page on Ideation Collective, we'll have to put a Laird Hamilton video of him doing one of these 40 foot waves or something like that. Yeah, there's, there's many of them out there you can choose from. Um, well, uh, that's great to have that, you know, mentoring type of conversation, with, especially with somebody who, um, you know, has pretty well deserved yeah, uh, right. accolades for, for his right. accomplishments, right? Anybody else that's been just a hero in your life of how to treat people? Somebody that you looked up to, maybe younger in life or younger in your career, of man, that's somebody that was always doing right by people that look up to. Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I come from a pretty healthy family. Um, you know, grandparents were phenomenal examples of, of how to love each other and love their families around them and love their communities and you know, really into community service and just kind of giving back, you know, both sides of my family. And so I, I have a pretty, you know, both my parents were in the Peace Corps and just kind of that, that ethic of, of helping out the community around you is pretty instilled in me from, from the beginning. But you know, what's, what's cool is that getting into the health food industry, there's a plethora of phenomenal examples, whether they're other companies or, you know, other CEOs or whatnot of, just doing the right thing and being good people. And, you know, the health food industry is full of people that want to provide health 
on all levels, whether it's relation, healthy relationships, business relationships, whether it's you know healthy supply chain, whether it's you know funding the the growth of an organic farmer because they you know one of the most recent examples was actually Cliff Bar. They have this loan repayment program for small-scale farmers coming out of school that have student debt. They'll repay as long as they commit to like organic farming, small-scale agriculture, and kind of revitalizing the land. And so, you know, the, there's a lot of companies in the health food category focused on, on these bigger projects. And so it's just a phenomenal industry to be in right now. That's great. Yeah. You know, um, we're wrapping up here, uh, but before we leave the, the human dynamic, um, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in balancing the ambition and the work and being married and, you know, obviously uh, being a new dad here. Yeah. Any thoughts about, any thoughts about um, how you do that when it comes to, you know, when work is stuck in your life away or it's creating, creating arguments in the marriage or anything, any thoughts about that kind of side of things? Man, that, you know, uh, any thoughts, yeah, thoughts on that daily uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I come from a relationship where Eric and I, at one point of our lives, spent about a year living in a van with, you know, two surfboards, two kayaks, two mountain bikes, and a dog. And we just traveled around. And we just had so much fun. We visited family and friends. And, you know, so it's like complete, like all of our time spent on that and not working, just recreating and having fun and, you know, enjoying life. To then, you know, jumping into entrepreneurship, which I, I, in full disclosure, did not realize the time commitment that I was getting into. So it's a, it's a balance. I come from, you know, opposite polar extremes here, but, you know, at the end of the day, the, the business is nothing, you know, all that could go away. Like, you know, it could collapse overnight or even if it didn't, you know, you know, at the end of my life, you know, it will be nothing compared to, you know, my relationship with, with my woman and my son and my family. So that I, I try and focus on that is core. You know, I, I maintain that and, and everything that happens happens is kind of a side to that. And so I, I constantly have to check myself because, you know, Chapul is so inspirational. So like energizing. I, I'm so passionate. I dive into it with all my time and, but you know, I have to pull myself out to, to bring myself and be present because that is much more important in my life. So. That's great. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about all these different things you're doing, um, you know, I think one other thing that people would love to hear is, you know, you've done three separate TED Talks. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Any thoughts about what you've learned? I've done three of them. Um, yeah. In, actually, in conjunction with that, I've started getting into storytelling a little bit. So I, I've done up in uh, Story Story Night and then here in Salt Lake, there's the Bee Storytelling event. It's told the story of fishing and um, I, I think I'm trying to incorporate that element of storytelling more into these kind of more either business or educational yeah. talks because, you know, there's a science to educating, you know, you tell somebody what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them and very formulaic. But I think the more artistic you can make your message and the more creative and more flow you can have and the more tangents of really interesting kind of personal aspects like more you can bring the storytelling aspect into the presentations. I feel like that's what I'm working on anyway. The, the more effective your message is and the more it resonates because it's not as boring as kind of ABC bullet point two, three, four. So 
that's what I'm working on. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously it's worked for you where now people are calling and trying to hire you as a speaker. Yeah. And, and tell me the name of your website if people want to hire you as a speaker. What's the... Are you still... Is that still in launch mode right now or you got that up already? Oh, it's... It's still in launch mode. <laughs> yeah? Okay. Well, anybody listening to this, please come to Pat's page on, on ideationcollective.com. We'll have that link up. It sounds like it's coming up soon. Yeah, it'll be up soon. That's great. And obviously we're going to put your TED Talks on there for people that want to yeah. see those. Um, but what... What are you finding in the shift? Of, obviously, you're doing so much on the bar business, um, but it sounds like you enjoy the public speaking thing. Oh, I do. I do. And I think it's because of that storytelling. Um, it, it's uh, it's one of the, it's probably the oldest art form, and it's such a just ancient communication tool. And, and so I like that element of it and so it's my artistic expression I think and so getting into more of the public speaking I really enjoy communicating I have a background in education and so I enjoy kind of bringing a message forward and you know at Chapul we, we have this deep mission, mission and it's you know we have a vision for the future that's pretty thought out and developed and it, it just you can't communicate it in the two second sound bites that you have to have in traditional marketing and you know, a snapshot that you can put on your packaging and force four words or less. And so when you have that public speaking, you can get deeper into the, the kind of wisdom of the company a little bit more. And so I really appreciate that component of it. So um, as you've been hired in the past and you've done this, what, what kind of, when these clients, you know, corporations or whoever want you to come in and speak, yeah. what, what are they asking you to speak on or what's that? Yeah, so I've been getting into more. So Obviously, the, the no-brainer is, you know, food and or insects and food. And so I've, I've spoken at some, you know, national food conferences about that and several universities around the country. Um, but now I'm starting to speak more on just innovation in general, innovation in business and, you know, entrepreneurship. I was an entrepreneur and resident at Montana State uh, University earlier this year. And, and that was super fun, just going into different classes and whatnot, because I don't have a traditional education and, and it, it's more kind of uh, education, experiential education. Uh, but yeah, just innovation, creativity, and, and then authenticity and, and how to have a successful impact-based business because you know now more than ever, ever, millennials are focused on, that's one of their highest priorities is what sort of an impact can I have in this world? You know, that's, you know, salary is secondary, you know, and like job stability, forget that. That doesn't even exist. And so... Um, yeah, do something that matters. Do something that's going to benefit your community around you. And so, I've been speaking on more of that and how to how to do that, but how to create a successful business around that as well. That's great. Um, okay, last thing before we let you go, uh, we're we're obviously big audio nerds around here. We yeah. like our, we like our audio books. Uh, any any recommendations whether on uh, that you think you know people trying to invent something or people trying to grow a company. Yeah. Any, any book recommendations? Yeah. Come to mind? Uh, two right off the bat are Raising the Bar. Uh, it was essentially the story of Cliff Bar. Um, I think uh, Gary Erickson was presented with a buyout from a Quaker of like $109 million And I, I think he had like $10,000 in his savings account at the time. And he ended up saying no. And so the whole book is around you know, why he made that decision and, and where they took the company from that. But it's, it's really a good book on kind of having a mission as a company and, and how do you stay true to that? How do you constantly remind yourself of, of what you're doing, the culture that you've created around that? So great book. And then kind of along those lines is, uh, Yvonne Chouinard's, uh, let my people go surfing. A uh, great book. Patagonia. About, yeah. Patagonia, founder of Patagonia. 
um, just about company culture and, and, and what we've talked about a couple times today about what really matters in life. And, you know, if the business supports that, all the better. But it's it's secondary. <laughs> and then I, I think um, highest on my personal reading list is uh, A Voyage for Mad Men. A phenomenal book. It's, it's about... Uh, the contest in 1968 be the first person to solo circumnavigate the globe without stopping sailing. And so it was the first time anyone had ever done it. And several boats left and they had a contest for who could do it the fastest. And then, um, who would be the first one to do it? You could leave within a, like a year time span. And so it kind of highlights all the people that embark on this incredible voyage into the unknown, this exploration and, what the trials and tribulations along the way and what motivates somebody to do that and, and what are the rewards associated with it. Okay. We're going to have links to all those cool. on your page. That's great. Yeah. Uh, this is great. Thanks yeah. Fun. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the ideation collective while it's still free. The website iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.